one teaching that stuck in my mind for many years from Lumpur Lee, one of the most senior disciples of Tanajaya Mahabua. Many of his teachings are very direct, very simple. And one was that when we recognize our own ignorance is when wisdom starts to arise. The Buddhist path to the end of suffering is the path about engaged with developing wisdom, understanding. Understanding and realization of the Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. This knowledge is <clears throat> based on experience, the knowledge that removes the causes of suffering from a human mind. It comes through the practice, through the experience of the practice. Although we begin our practice uh, with more of a conceptual understanding. We have the ideas, the goals of the practice that we've read about, the descriptions, the details from the suttas and from teachers, which are usually necessary and essential to help begin the training to develop right view and right understanding of the way things are. But as the forest agents point out over and over again, <coughs> this conceptual knowledge of the path is too superficial yet to completely eradicate remove craving and attachment, which is the causing of suffering. So we need to develop the Vinaya training and develop mindfulness, right effort, right mindfulness, and put much effort into that, because this is where the practice in reality changes from say the, the mind changes from having an intellectual understanding of the way things are to an experiential understanding and knowing and seeing clearly the way things are.
Hmm. Our Lumpur Cha would always send monks back to sit more meditation, walk more meditation, rather than necessarily discussing personal problems and issues that would come up. He would answer questions and have dumber discussions, but so often if someone was having some problem or suffering in their practice, he'd say, go off and walk meditation. Bring up mindfulness. Meditate on your meditation object. Solve the problem yourself. That kind of response. Because in the end, that's what we have to do. We're developing um, an independence of mind based on realization and understanding of the way things are for ourselves. Different from the kind of independence of mind that we might have brought into the robes with us, which is more from cultural conditioning and idealism, where we often have the feeling, the thought, we want to be independent from everything else that we don't like, don't want, don't agree with. We want to be our own man, our own person, in charge, making our own decisions, going where we want, doing what we want. We've all experienced that. The independence of the practitioner is always the one based on sila samadhi panya, developing the path factors in the human mind to the point where it's liberated from craving, clinging attachment, truly independent. So the Arya Pugala, the Buddha said, is truly independent. Independent from the fetters, depending on how advanced in their path they are. Independent from wrong view, independent from self-view, Sakaya Ditti. They no longer grasp at the five candors, the body and mind as self, no longer view that view it in that, that way. And no longer fumbling around, groping or grasping around with the practice, caught into doubt or uncertainty about what is the practice, what isn't, what's the right way to practice, what isn't. In the independence of mind of the area Pugla, they have all the more respect and appreciation for Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They're not far from the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, they're right up close, right with it. It's a different kind of independence than we normally talk about in the world. It comes from knowledge, true clear knowledge, clear seeing of the way things are in a trained mind through the practice. So it begins with the external study, listening to the Dhamma, reading, contemplating. And then we have to internalize it, open aiko, bring the Dhamma inwards through cultivating particularly right effort and right mindfulness, and developing the stillness and firmness of mind 
through the presence of mindfulness and the wholesomeness of mind when the mind is not agitated by negative states so it can really see the way things are. This is why we keep coming back to the breath, sitting meditation, cultivating mindfulness of breathing, walking meditation, cultivating mindfulness in all postures, firming up the mind so that we can contemplate based on some real detached awareness rather than assumptions or guessing or estimating how the Dhamma or the truth might be, but actually knowing, seeing for ourselves. And we practice mindfulness on every level of our practice. We're developing it on every level. And with the Vinaya, whether it's the five precepts or the Vinaya, bringing the mind to the point where it's just second nature, or our own intuition is the intuition of somebody who understands precepts as a way of training. Training the mind to abandon the unwholesome and to cultivate the good. Abandon unwholesome mental states and intentions and train in cultivating wholesome, skillful intentions, mental states. We use the precepts like that and the result is we're developing a sense of personal integrity, reliability within ourselves over time other people get to realize it as well, but we have it for ourselves so that with it we gain a sense of self-respect and well-being because we're not following unwholesome pathways. As Ajahn Chah used to say, we, we love to develop the good but we're not so skilled with abandoning evil or unwholesome, unskillful ways. The precepts we use as guidelines that we can make the mind very firm and brings up this sense of integrity. The mind naturally shies away from unwholesome mental states because of the presence of mindfulness, knowing that they're painful and leading to pain. It just becomes good habit not habit in the, the worldly way, it's now habit based on the practice of mindfulness and realization that harmful ways of speaking, acting, lead to suffering, lead to regret, agitation, guilt, and all the other kinds of mental suffering. Whereas following the precepts or the Vinaya, keeps us with a sense of well-being, being at ease. As it becomes second nature, it's something you no longer doubt or have concerns about. If you have a lapse of mindfulness, then it's just 
knowing, oh, that was a lapse of mindfulness, and as it becomes a, a, a revealed to the mind, then the mind just re-establishes awareness to keep that rule, that precept, and give up that unwholesome way of behavior which has become apparent. The practitioner it gets to be like that rather than dwelling with a lot of negativity or even guilt, regret. Because as we practice mindfulness we become absolutely clear that the past is something that's gone. We can't return to the past and change it. So we have to develop a skillful attitude towards the past, past mistakes, past karma that was rooted in un greed, anger and delusion. We can't deny it, blot it out, hide it, but we can treat the memory or the results of that karma skillfully. Learn from it and move on. And we're learning this with the, with the Vinaya training and this supports the meditation. And as we meditate, there'll be plenty of memories popping up. And if we're not treating them skillfully, well, they're feeding more sakayaditi, increasing our self-view, identifying with memories of what's gone on in the past, building up self-view. If we always dwell on negative memories, things that we're unhappy about, well, we tend to have a self-view based on that. Feeling of negative, negativity towards one's self-view, lack of respect, lack of a good feeling about oneself, taking everything personally, what I've said and done. As we establish mindfulness, maybe all we need to do is just know a memory as a memory. And we know it has some effect on the mind and what we've done, where we've been, but it's just a memory now. How do we treat it now with mindfulness? Just know it's just a memory. The good that was good, good has been done. The bad that was bad has been done. But it's over with. We acknowledge it and let it go. Your mindfulness is like that. It brings the mind back to the present moment. In the present moment, your self-view can't form if we're establishing mindfulness. We can't repeat the mistakes of the past and hold on to self-view that we've built up before and keep holding and clinging on to it. It starts to disperse as we bring up mindfulness. Mindfulness on the breath, breathe in, breathe out. Memory then is just a memory. Feelings are just feelings, thoughts are just thoughts. If we don't maintain mindfulness, then we slip back into self-view again, identifying with each, and th each thought, each mood, each feeling, the way we are and our goals and our attachments become very important. 
That's the way self-view is. When mindfulness slips away, we create a self-image again. Even as monks, we do it. I'm a monk, you're a layperson. I'm a senior monk, you're a junior monk. I'm a monk, you're a novice. You're an anagarika, you're a layperson. I'm right, you're wrong. I know you don't know. I know a lot, I know a little. And Sakayaditi is the coarsest kind of self-view. We're going to have self of some sort or other, right up to the Azamimana, the mana of uh, Anagami. Sakayaditi, we're dealing with the coarsest self that leads us to break precepts, harm others, harm ourselves, cause ourselves, the sort of coarsest kind of suffering. A lot of it we can remedy as we train ourselves in mindfulness and meditation. Just look at the, your thoughts, your views about your, who you are, what you are, your goals, your aspirations, your loves and hates. And just see how they are so superficial, added on to our experience. Bring the mind right back to the present moment. Dropping the future, dropping the past. If we're not really sure how to contemplate as we establish mindfulness, we'll keep coming back to the body. Ask yourself questions as you meditate. This body that's sitting there, here, is it really a self? Is it, does it belong to a person? Does it belong to you? Is it me, mine, myself? Every day we're using this body for different functions, we engage with it. We exercise, we walk, we sit, we lie down, we sleep, we wash, we eat. We shave our heads, we cut our nails, we scratch hitches. On and on it goes. And these are all opportunities to bring up mindfulness, cut through Sakayaditi. Where is the person, this idea of a person that we've been clinging onto and nurturing for so long, where is it in these basic things, fundamental kind of building blocks of humans, is earth, air, fire, water, temperature and liquid, where's the person in that, the good person, the bad person, the male, female, the monk, the layman, You're stripping things back down to the basics of the kandas, rupa dhamma, nama dhamma, with mindfulness as you meditate. That is why living in a monastery, although often in the beginning we find it frustrating and annoying and difficult, is actually a great opportunity to learn about letting go of sakaya ditti, following on rules, routines, doing chores, like you do chores, like you clean a bathroom that others have used. You don't even know who's dirt or what is soiling the bathroom or the toilet, where it came from, if a number of different people use it. And that's a reflection in itself, just letting go of Sakaya Ditti, contemplating scum on the bottom of a shower, instead of just going to aversion the ugliness of it, 
contemplate. You can't tell whose bits of skin have made up the scum on the bottom of a shower. It's because it's just matter from humans. Whose rubbish goes into the bin? There's a number of different people's rubbish is in the bin. Very obvious kind of reflection, but the Sakaya Ditti can be disappearing in there as you contemplate with mindfulness. If you give in to unwholesome states of mind, say if the, the gatekeeper is down or the gatekeeper's gone off for a sleep, then you'll let negativity come in maybe when you do chores. Instead of reflecting to let go of Sakaya Ditti, then it's just, oh, me having to do this job again. I'm better than this, or I shouldn't have to do this. Why are these other people not doing it? Why did they make the mess? And so on. You know, the negativity, the unwholesome states of mind slip in because mindfulness is gone. Our guard is dropped. Like the boxer drops his guard, just gets knocked out by the unwholesome mind state. But who lets the unwholesome mind state in? It's not other people, it's ourselves. And Dhamma is open aiko, it's mindfulness in the present moment. <coughs> you clean a toilet or a shower or doing some other job around the monastery and nobody else is bringing those unwholesome mental states into your mind. It's only because you've dropped your guard. You've lost Buddha, you've lost the one who knows. And that's a fundamental realization. If I'm suffering, it's because of my own ignorance, not because of other people. Once you strip it down to that, then you, you're, you've got a chance to transcend suffering because you know where to look and where to remedy the problem. If we're still caught up in our unwholesome mental states, you know, greed for some form of requisite or some kind of experience, the bliss of samadhi or some experience or just more requisites or more attention from lay people or whatever or the negativity of disagreements with others different opinions with others or just the being tired of living with others or whatever either way you go to greed or anger this is because your own mindfulness has dropped and unwholesome mental states are flooding into your mind and there's no one to blame but you in the end, there's no you there anyway. It's just a lack of mindfulness, a lack of insight. But over and over, because of past karma, we keep building up the sense of self. So when Sakayaditi is there, we lose track of the past and we get caught into doubt, uncertainty. We fumble around in the practices that we use. We're not clear in how to use them to free ourselves from suffering. We take everything very personally, seriously. So when we have suffering in the mind, we don't usually laugh very much. We don't, we're not light. We're heavy, we have a heavy feeling. Often in the lay life, we've been so used to that heaviness of suffering that we just accept it. Almost just become so used to it, we don't think of getting rid of it. This is where that reflection of Ajahn Chah is so apt in the man who carries along the heavy rock 
just carrying it all the time, sweating, straining under the weight. Someone else comes along and says, why don't you just throw it down? He says, well, never, uh, never done that. I wouldn't do that because then I'd have nothing to carry. Even states of suffering we can get so used to and so attached to, we're just used to it. We wouldn't know what to do if we weren't suffering with this, all this mental stress and the aches and pains of a body. We're just used to it. That's why sometimes when people meditate, they have a sense of fear of letting go. All they're doing is letting go of the causes of suffering and the experience of suffering. Still they don't want to do it. They get afraid. They're so used to identifying with suffering as self. That's me. As we establish mindfulness, whether it's even just for a few moments, immediately there's a lightness of mind. Mind wakes up a bit, it's a bit lighter, feels better because it's putting down the burden of the candors and the attachments. If we keep <coughs> regularly bringing up mindfulness persistently, well, that feeling of lightness improves, increases. All the more the heaviness of attachment and craving is exposed and when the mind doesn't want to go back there. Over time we don't doubt so much, we know that the right thing to do is let go. So then there's less fear, less doubt about the whole process, we're more willing to do it. We know that if we put effort into bringing up mindfulness, it works the mind feels better. So it energizes the mind. Sati, dhamma, vichaya, virya, piti, samati, pasati, samati, opeka. The enlightenment factors work like this. Bringing up a mindfulness allows us to contemplate dhamma, brings up energy and effort, brings up the joy and the tranquility the lightness of body and mind. Whether it's just briefly or more intensely, more profoundly for long periods. And the more we do it, the more we trust in the practice. We don't doubt it so much. We know really the only problem is just keeping up the guard of mindfulness, not letting the hindrances and the negative mind state slip in again. You establish mindfulness on the breath and that whatever sense of self you were carrying around starts to dissipate. Whether you think you're very good or very bad, you like yourself, you don't. Whatever your past, doesn't matter. You're bringing up mindfulness. The more effort we put into it, the other past factors we're cultivating, the sila, the mindfulness, the samadhi, and then investigating the dhamma. You know, a sense of self-view starts to dissipate. It's got to be better than before. Sure, the mind still slips back into suffering. We drop our guard. Suffering it returns. Unwholesome mental states can return. But the more we do it, the more we know what we have to do to let go of the unwholesome mental states. 
It's got to be better than not practicing, as the Buddha gave you the simile of the person who scratches their finger on the ground and they get a little bit of dirt under their nails. So that's the suffering of the sotapanna, the stream enterer. They still have some suffering, but it's very minor. It won't be long, not many lifetimes till there. They reach Nibbana. That's compared to the all the earth in the whole world, which is greater, obviously. The earth in the whole world is much greater. That's the suffering of samsara, the wheel, the endless cycle of birth and death. It's just endless, the suffering. If you don't practice mindfulness, don't develop the path, Sakaya Ditti just keeps rushing on, keep identifying with this person, who we are, our cultural conditioning, the conditioning from when we're a kid, things that happened when we're a kid, when we're a young adult, <coughs> middle age, our family, our friends, the society around us, all the different conditioning forces, they just run riot and bring endless suffering, agitation, stress. We die and then it all happens again. If we're not careful, if we haven't developed the, the garden, then the, we've still got the gates to the Abhaya Bhumi is open to still fall into states of deep suffering, mental suffering, depression, rage, anger. <clears throat> the Sotapanna doesn't have that anymore, they've closed the gates permanently. And they've seen and each dukkha anatta in the, the kandas, you have clear insights. So there's there's a certain amount of cutting off, cessation, abandonment of a previously held wrong views, wrong understanding. That leads to the creating of negative karma. That leads to the rebirth in the lower realms. <coughs> That's gone. Completely gone from the mind even though there's still more refined greed, anger present, subtle sense of self and the attachment to the rupajanas or rupajanas and so on. But the course of the kilesas are gone, Sakaya Ditti gone. In the end we have just this, this choice, you know, once you've heard the Dhamma, it's almost like kind of you have no choice. You've heard the Dhamma of the Buddha. You just have to keep practicing. And the choice is just to set, set yourself adrift, cast adrift in the ocean of samsara, bobbing up and down. It's actually the state of mind, someone who's not well trained, without mindfulness, their mind just bobs up and down on the surface of mental states and the different aramana, different objects. They never really deeply experience things the way they are. They're just always on the surface, sort of slipping around. <coughs> One who practices mindfulness brings up mindfulness. The mind dives in, gets to know the nature of phenomena. You start with simple things, say, like the breath, 
as you bring up mindfulness of the breath, you get to know it the way it is. That means it's not just how you think about the breath or your view about it or your guessing about it, you're just knowing and breathing in, breathing out. The phenomena, the nature of breath is like this. It's impermanent. It's dukkha, it's stressful because it's going in and out. It's unreliable. It doesn't last. It's not self. There's no person in that. It's not a me, mine, myself, a being. It's just breath going in, going out. It's just one example of mindfulness exposing or revealing the truth. And you, once you train with the breath, then you apply it to other physical mental phenomena and you get to know that they're in each dukkha anatta. When we're not mindful, then the mind is just bobbing around on the surface, as the Buddha explained. It's just very superficial knowledge and understanding of things. So easily goes wrong, goes astray, easily overturned by different mental states that arise, greed, anger, jealousy, rivalry, envy, delusion. Mindfulness the opposite. Mindfulness brings the mind to stillness, clarity, firmness, and then you can really know the nature of phenomena. You're standing, observing, rather than getting caught up with the flow of things. So then you can, you've got a chance to understand the Four Noble Truths, free the mind from some of its delusion. So as they say, even one moment of mindfulness is reducing the number of lifetimes you've got to be reborn in samsara. Many moments of lifetime, and many moments of mindfulness is reducing many lifetimes in samsara. How long we've got, we don't need to speculate. It's just the future. We just keep bringing the mind back to the present moment, cultivating the path factors. And the more we understand the effect it has on the mind, the less we have to doubt it, that it's the right thing to do. We feel better, lighter, happier. The heaviness of past attachment starts to fade. So we're getting close to Vasa now. It's time to settle down, put your mind to the Dhamma practice, studying the Vinaya, keeping the Vinaya, learning chanting, and learn the Patimoka. It's an ideal situation to do that. Put effort into your sitting, walking meditation. Put effort into different practices and learn to be restrained in the Vinaya and restrained in the use of the requisites, restrained in how much you sleep, how much you talk. Bring our effort into sitting and walking meditation. And when the weather is difficult, it's cold or windy or wet, you will turn your attention inwards to the practice of Dhamma. What happens when it's sunny and warm? Well, it's pleasant and can be quite useful, but people then tend to relax, hang out, and let their mind go all over, all over the place. So maybe some stiff weather can actually be quite stimulating for the practice. It brings up effort, makes you see the dukkha of living in the world, 
The world is like this, it's unpredictable. It's not always easy. If it was always easy, we probably wouldn't see the Dhamma. So the different hardships we face, they're our teachers. We use them. So maybe the next couple of weeks take time to see where you want to improve your practice, put effort into your practice, what more you can do and make. So get some clear plan of how you're going to use your time in the Vasa for your practice. So for not tonight, I'll leave you with these reflections. <laughs>